Welcome to Coach House Talks. Good to see you all. Really good to see you all. And uh, it's nice to see some new faces and some old faces as well. So that's, uh, it's always a joy when we see people coming through the door we've not seen for a while. So, uh, and if you're first time visiting to us, then we give you a wonderful welcome and we pray that you'll be blessed as you spend time with us. Um, bear with me a second. When I, uh, when I look at the Premier League table right now, <laughs> I told you to bear with me. So it's always a risky start. So when I look at the Premier League... T- 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 thanks. <laughs> oh dear, it makes it... Just, just to elevate it, even worse... So when I look at the Premier League at the moment, at this t- you know, think, why am I going to talk about football? I'm not really going to talk about football, I just want to illustrate something. So when I look, and, uh, and you kind of put it up on your phones or whatever, however you look at what's happening in the football world, I notice a couple of things. One is that Arsenal are top of the league. Okay? And that Manchester City, who are usually top of the league are not. They're second. At the moment. The second thing I notice, okay, is that the current manager of Arsenal, Mikel Arteta, was the understudy to Pep Guardiola. And in fact, if he took his hair off, he would look and sound like Pep. Have you ever noticed that when he's been interviewed? You think, it's Pep with hair. So, and he was previously part of the management team at Manchester City. And he was the understudy to Pep. He learnt well. That's what I'm going to say. He learnt well. He reflects the style of Pep. But he brings his own personality to how he does it and how he manages his team. The student is learning to be the master. And I'll make no more comment than that, because we're only halfway through the season. There's a lot of time to go yet. And there's a team in red bubbling up just underneath. So, one thing we shall see when we read our Bibles is that this is encouraged from the very beginning, this kind of learning from each other and spurring each other on. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. In our image. In the truest sense, we believe in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're made in an image that reflects all aspects of God's nature and character. You and I, made in God's image to reflect his glory. Everything that Adam and Eve knew had been fashioned by their creator, The behavioural patterns came from God, including the freedom to choose obedience. Jesus chose obedience. You've noticed that. He chose to go to the cross for us. He chose, even though he was despairing in the Garden of Gethsemane, please take this cup away. He said, no. My Father's will is that I do this, so I'm going to do it. And we're reminded in Scripture a number of times that Jesus says, I do the will 
of the Father. So even that comes down to us. It's in our, it's in our makeup. And all of this was great until Satan tricked them into following another master. The tension between choosing obedience to God or rejection of God's plans is or has been at the forefront of our decision-making ever since. I suppose if I was overly generous, I could start to make excuses for Adam and Eve and say, well, they had no examples to follow. They were first and therefore probably could be excused their naivety. But hold on. They were made to be like us. That's what God's instruction was. And beyond that, Adam was also given a specific instruction that he was to pass on to Eve. So I want, to, I want you to notice how these things work throughout your Bible. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But the Lord God warned him, that's Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Only afterwards, after this statement has been said, was Eve created. And it's obvious from the serpent's inquiry to her that she had received this information from Adam. She'd received this information about not taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The information had been passed on. Now it needed to be acted upon. But we all know how that ended up. If Mel was to ask me to do some DIY, and we debated about whether I should put <laughs> if she asked me, or rather, when she asked me, <laughs> like, put a, sh put a shelf up for her. I need a shelf hanging. You know, I've been waiting for five years. I need this shelf putting up. Or an even simpler instruction, like, clean up that pile of books in the living room that you've left on the coffee table. It would be no good if my answer was just to acknowledge the request and then do nothing about it. Nothing would get done and I would just get disapproving looks from the woman that I love. There, I said it. And I guess the same is true of Christianity. It's no good acknowledging Jesus and our need of him if we're not then going to follow what he asks us to do. Isaiah, one of the major prophets in the Bible, does not hold back as he delivers God's words to the people of Israel. Isaiah 58 is an amazing passage, but it's a hard passage. And I'll say to you, read it at some point. We're not going to go through it today, but look at chapter 58. It's an interesting heart check for us, for us and our reasons for doing what we do. Why do we come to church? Why do we hold on to Christianity? Why do we have faith? What's that do for us? And God knows our hearts. And therefore, he knows the reality of every intentional action we do. Think about that one for a second. God knows our hearts, therefore he knows why we do what we do. And Isaiah 58 puts this loud and clear in front of us. We might be able to fool each other, and even ourselves, which I would suggest is the real danger here, but we will not ever deceive God. 
In the New Testament, Paul urges us to do the things that align to God's heart and his standards and not be fooled into doing things thinking it doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. This is Paul's word to these early believers in the church in Corinth. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. And he's writing to believers here. You know, we've got to understand that when Paul's writing most of this stuff, he's writing to people who have, are professing some form of faith. They have switched their allegiance to Jesus. And he's saying, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheap people, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe this needs reading at the General Synod. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. Are we reading what we've just been cleansed from? Some of you were like all of these things, but you have been cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Today, if we wanted to know how to follow Jesus, I suppose we could Google it, buy a book off Amazon, watch a TikTok clip, or even subscribe to a YouTube channel called How to Mimic Jesus in Five Easy Steps. Now, I haven't checked to see if that actually exists, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did. We have shortcuts to almost everything in our lives. But there is no shortcut for actually following and doing. It takes discipline and it takes effort. Especially when it's the opposite of everything we see going on around us. The Apostle Paul, when he was teaching these things, had another problem which we still face today. Who could be trusted to be taught? And who would listen and be faithful in passing this teaching on? So Paul knew from his Bible, and we should know it from our Bibles, that the instruction was to pass on generation to generation who God is and how much he loves you. What his plans and purposes are for you. That's what the Old Testament ultimately is about. Pass on this knowledge. Pass it on. Pass it on. Pass it on. This isn't on my notes because I was just thinking about this this morning. We like banner headlines nowadays, don't we? And we make excuses saying, well, we just want to know the big headline. We don't really want to know the detail because I'm, I haven't got the time to look at the detail. I'm not interested in spending time and commitment, even listening to the truth. We want everything to be in little packets that we can just, hey, manage and take away because our time is too valuable to us. And that's actually the real reason why we do half the things we do. Listen to what Paul says when he's teaching Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says this, You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Not just teach anybody, trustworthy people. 
people who are going to do this job, people who are going to be faithful in it, people who are going to commit to it, people who are going to be disciplined in it so that they can maturely bring others into faith. So we're looking at the DNA of the church, and this is one of our DNA kind of principles. The Coach House Church seeks to be faithful to the teaching of the Word of God presented fully in the Scriptures, to teach accurately to the best of our ability, enabling the church to fulfill its God-given potential. That's the grandiose statement from the website, which I fully endorse. And it describes our commitment to train and release people. So it's under that banner, train and release. Yes, it's our responsibility to teach the truth faithfully, but it's also our role as leaders to make sure that we release trustworthy disciples. Knowledge is one thing, but acting out of that knowledge is another thing entirely. And probably the biggest reason why God's church is largely seen as hypocritical today. We don't do what we're telling others to do. One of the big issues in today's society, which leaks into church, because you know, we shouldn't be surprised that whatever's going on outside these walls leaks in. We bring it in with us. We're affected by it. And one of the things that we have an issue with is the passing on of responsibilities. I don't mean it in the positive stance of giving responsibilities to people in order to challenge them and allow them to prosper, but rather the negative position of passing on responsibility. In other words, we don't like taking responsibility ourselves. We would rather somebody else did it. So we pass over from it. We disengage from it personally and then are quick to blame others who we have just effectively thrown under the bus by not accepting responsibility ourselves. Our one view is affirming and releasing. That we pass on responsibility in a good way. We train people. We train people about the DNA of this church. We train people how to keep this church going. I'm grateful that 70 years from the beginning of this church, we've been passed on good stuff. Now, we've had our ups and downs, but generally speaking, we've been passed on good DNA. And it's our responsibility currently to pass on that DNA to those that follow us. So that view is really affirming, and that's really positive. But the other way, the way that we tend to kind of look at things nowadays and pass on responsibility, or rather pass over responsibility, is quite negative. And it's attached to blame culture, and we see it all around us today. Blame culture is massive. Let's just blame anybody but ourselves. Turn on any news channel, read any paper, and someone somewhere is being blamed for something. I wonder how many of us have blamed others for something we should have taken responsibility for. I was talking with my pastoral group, who I meet with every month, pastors from other teachers, uh, churches in Stockport. It's always good because we can sit around the table as leaders and kind of say, hey, what difficulties are we experiencing? What, what things are pressing in on us? So I was talking with this pastoral group this week about what we see around us in today's society. It seems that nobody has the time to invest. So on a macro level, we pass on responsibility for ethics, standards, 
behavior and well-being to other people. Whether it be schools, peer groups, or even churches. I remember being sent to Sunday school as a kid. I can tell you, the, I can describe the room where it was and the smell of it. And also the sweet shop across the road where we were able to send 10, 10 pence and get this massive big paper bag of sweets. You can't do that anymore. It's like 10 pence for one now. You just go in there, how many, space, how many flying saucers can I have for a penny? <laughs> five. Whoa! I'll five of them and, I'll, and I mean, I've still got nine pence left. What else can I have? And you come out with this great big bag of sweets. And you can't do that nowadays, can you? It's like a pound a bag now. So we were sent to Sunday school, and there are lasting memories that I remember from Sunday school. But most of them are not anything to do with God, if I'm honest. However, something must have been imprinted in there. Because I remember being at school, thinking, I've got this position of God being a creator, and it's very opposed to what I'm being taught. And yet I feel that this is the right thing to believe. And it's actually easier to believe this, even if I don't believe in God, it's easier to believe in a creator than it is to believe some of the other stuff I'm being taught. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because my parents didn't send me to Sunday school in order for me to find God. They sent me to Sunday school so they could have a bit of peace and quiet in the morning. The three, three kids were sent off to Sunday school. Off you go, out of the house for a few hours. They could have a bit of me time. Nothing wrong with that. But also, I suspect that the real reason is that we might learn some good moral behavior we might learn some good ethics. Now, on one hand, that looks very positive. But on the other hand, we need to question where was their personal responsibility for giving us the ethical and the moral upbringing? Now, in my case, I was surrounded by good standards and upbringing. Okay, my mum and dad were wonderful. But they were outside of God. So God was not part of that picture, was not part of that upbringing. But good behavior isn't always the sign of a relationship with Jesus. The Bible tells us this very, very clearly. I want us to understand the weight that is given to us to make sure our hearts are right. We're urged to examine ourselves, examine our motives, and be careful and truthful in our scrutiny. Why? Well, because our hearts matter. God is really interested in what's going on in our hearts. Not what we think and what we express through our brain, but what is actually the heart, the underlying reason why we do things. But the truth is, in today's society, it's easier to pass over this personal responsibility and easier to pass it on to others. Let them have the responsibility rather than to invest in it ourselves. Anybody would have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody would do it, but nobody realized that anybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Yeah? you get that? It's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a famous little parable. It's not from the Bible, so don't go try and find it. It's not in Formica. It's 
Anybody would have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody would do it, but nobody realized that anybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Brilliant, eh? Practice that, can't you tell? <laughs> the serious side of this, though, is that we all have a responsibility to teach the truth and act in that truth. It's no good just saying, here's the truth, people. You've got to act in it. You've got to see me act in it. I want to see you acting in it. Remember, Paul was, when he looking at Timothy, he's looking for, he wants, I'm going to teach you this, but I want you to look for responsible people that you can pass it on to. We have this responsibility to teach and act in the truth in order to preserve the legacy of those before us. That's one point. But more importantly, it's to bring honor and glory to God who has rescued you, created you, and all of this is about. I must admit, I get really frustrated by the genuine desire to preach the gospel, but the lack of desire to make disciples. There's a great desire to preach the gospel, but the desire is not so great to make proper disciples. And as far as I can read, Jesus says, go and make disciples. And Paul spends all of his time making disciples. Jesus spent time making disciples. And what does that entail? Well, it entails... And it's a harder slog, I suppose, than just preaching the gospel. I mean, one of my frustrations, one of my bugbears, was that we, we used to give people a 10-question document to go out on the streets. And if you talk to somebody and you manage to corner them in a conversation, you just go through these 10 questions. And by the end of that 10 questions, they've got nowhere to turn but Jesus. And I suspect a lot of people went, all right, then I'll do that. And I'll pray the prayer if you'll shut up and go away. I need to get on with my shopping. Because I don't see them in church, if I'm honest. I mean, I've heard somebody on this platform say that, oh, 100 people got saved that weekend to a church of 30, 35 people. Where were they? Did they ever appear? We don't know. So we have this eagerness to preach the gospel, but we don't seem to have the same desire to make disciples because making disciples can be a hard slog. You have to make sure the truth you're teaching. You have to make sure that the truth you're teaching is understandable. You have to live out the truth as a good example. And you need to be there when the disciple falls. The best example we have of selfless devotion and love is, of course, Jesus. Every action, every word, every deed came from a place of love. He spoke to crowds in their hundreds. He healed the sick and he performed miracles. But he always had 12 mixed up, sometimes confused, sometimes over-enthusiastic, sometimes rebellious disciples. And disciple just means follower or pupil of a teacher. And in his case, he was the teacher. 
never gave up on them. He always encouraged them. He dusted them down when they failed and they faltered. He spoke the truth no matter how difficult that truth was to hear. And that's part of our role and responsibilities of leaders in church. There is no point telling you something than sugarcoating it. Only the truth will set you free. And Jesus is our role model. The Apostle Paul tells the early believers in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 to 33, and then it crosses over into chapter 11, verse 1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so not just our food, it's not just about what we're eating, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do everything in your life to honor God before men. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything that I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me as I imitate Christ. So not only does he give the statement about, hey, you should imitate me because I'm following the example of Jesus, but he says, this is what it looks like. And it ain't easy. Jesus spent three and a half years making sure that the disciples were thoroughly soaked in his teaching and example. Paul, after his conversion, took a number of years out learning and being reshaped so that he was able to go out and be successful in making disciples. Can you imagine Paul rocking up to the early church after just freshly getting saved? So he's been there holding the cloaks while uh, Stephen gets stoned. And then he has a miraculous conversion and then rocks up to church the very next day. Can you imagine what the people would have thought? I'm not surprised that God took him out of the picture for a little while and trained him and got all of that stuff out. And then when he eventually came back before the Council of Jerusalem, he had to be vouched for by Peter and James before the other disciples. We vouched for him. He has changed. He has gone through a considerable change. This man can be trusted. I can imagine that it will be cowering in the corners because his reputation preceded him. He's been persecuting the church. He's been personally overseeing disciples getting stoned and killed. So he had to be remodeled. He had to be reshaped. Yes, Jesus comes in and does something miraculous. Okay, let me just put this out there. When you give your life to the Lord, it's instant. Your sins are forgiven. But now you need reshaping. Now you need changing. Now you need challenging. Now your behavior needs to reflect Jesus. Paul reiterated the same model that he went through, that he learned from Jesus. So Jesus took the disciples three and a half years. That's where he invested his time because those disciples had a job to do to take the gospel out of Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Okay? 
which we know they did because we can track it in the story, in, the, in what we're giving in Acts. We can see that that happened. But we can also see that they were persecuted, they were challenged. It was not easy. And Paul takes the same model as he takes Timothy under his wing. Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus. And he took time to teach him thoroughly and faithfully. I can only live out my life, warts and all, and encourage you to let the Holy Spirit speak, direct, and change you. Our personal journey is one of bringing glory to God in our lives. And that's why we want to invest so heavily in teaching you the scriptures correctly. Teaching you what it is to be a Christian. What it is to walk with Jesus. Because we won't do you any favors if we just tell you that coming to Jesus just makes everything okay. It makes everything okay eternally, but we still go through stuff now. And we have to be very careful how we act with each other, how we challenge each other, and how we love each other when we fail. That's why it's so important to us as a church. Because we want to be like Jesus was to you. And we expect you to be like that to each other. And there are no shortcuts in this. Because our behavior and what we do is a reflection of our changed heart. But we can look forward to God's glory being known and manifest among us. I said to somebody the other week, I would much rather pastor a church of small number than have a church of hundreds. When I was looking after the youth, we had hundreds of youth coming through the doors in the various works through the week. Tuesday Club, Rewire, Thursday Club, loads of them, Friday Night Takeaway, Sunday School, Sanctuary, loads of different things. We had literally hundreds of kids coming through the door of church. I personally discipled about 12, maybe a few more. And I'm pleased to say that most of those are carrying on with the Lord. Not the hundreds, but the ones we invested in and discipled. They are now leading churches. They're now in places of responsibility in churches. And it's a great honor to know that you've invested something of what the pattern of Scripture tells you to do. And it's a lovely encouragement for us when we see that people are reacting to that investment. And Jesus invested his time in 12. But those 12 changed the world. And we're all sat here today because Jesus did that model. We wouldn't be here without it. We would not have heard the gospel. It wouldn't have reached us. And it reached us because they faithfully invested in others, like Paul invested in Timothy. And I'm sure Timothy invested in and so on and so forth. I think as we come down the ages, what we see nowadays is that because we've got now into a headline culture, that we just, all we're interested in is a headline. We don't, and that, that unfortunately means that you're taking shortcuts because you don't know what's underneath the headline. 
And scripture, we can treat scripture like that, I think. Oh, God's love. Okay, what about the rest of God's aspects? What about the rest of God's characters? Or, you know, God in the Old Testament was this, that, and the other, and in the New is different. Uh, okay, which Bible are you reading? Which version are you reading? Because it's really important that we see that God does not change. Because let me tell you, I mean, and let me tell you the reason why, and I'll finish with this. If God can change His mind, if God can change his character, if God can go back on his promises, what's your hope in? What's your hope in? Because we sit here today going, my hope is in eternity and what Jesus has paid the price for and released me from and I've got a promise of eternity. But what good is a promise if God can change his mind? That's why it's important. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.